in a way, we're all little solos. Like every lawyer in private practice is a solo. They have a practice and their practice is theirs. And if they don't conceive of it as theirs, they're mis- making a mistake. So even if they're in a huge law firm with thousands of people, they're running a business of their own. And it's not under the O'Melveny Aiken Gump name. It is their name and their connections and their network and their business. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Carl Ciceri, the owner of Ciceri PC in Dallas, Texas, where he practices appellate advocacy in Texas state courts, federal courts of appeal, and the United States Supreme Court. Carl is a true appellate expert, but beyond that has handled cases in numerous practice areas and is well known for his excellent brief writing, not only at the merit stage for parties, but also those filing amicus briefs. Before opening his own firm seven years ago, Carl practiced appellate advocacy at Aiken Gump in Washington, D.C. and Hankinson LLP in Texas. He began his career as a law clerk to Judge Mary Lou Robinson in the Northern District of Texas. Carl's a graduate of Dartmouth College, Go Green, and Southern Methodist University School of Law, Go Mustangs. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I was hoping you could start just by telling me a little bit about your practice, both in terms of the kind of work you do and the kind of law firm environment you work in. Sure. To start with my law firm environment, it is basically wherever I and my laptop happen to be. I may hang my hat in Dallas for the majority of the year, but we actually spend the summers in more fun and cooler locales. So this summer, we're going to go to Big Sky and Colorado. Yeah. And that's the great, that's some of the great things. We'll talk about it, but it's one of the great things about being a solo is that no one, there's no one to say no, <laughs> which is also the worst thing about being a solo. But since COVID, I've been home. I had an office share environment that I did. It was just down the street so I could walk and get a little exercise if I wanted to, although I never did. But I had a really convenient place to work that was not quite as underfoot, but COVID's brought me into my bedroom and I've been there ever since. And I don't know if I'm going to go back because it's, it's nice, it's cheap and refrigerator is right over there. It's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, ask you, are you planning on going back to an office once you can? I think it's inevitable that I'll have to go to an office. And to be frank, it's probably inevitable that I'm going to have to join a larger firm like someday, hmm. just because of all the things I'd like to do. Eventually, it's just we're going to require support. And one of the things about being a solo is there are the, every ebb and flow hits you and only you. And there's no one to, when, a lot, when it gets really tight and a lot of things are going on, you're the only one who can do it. And that's a real challenge and it makes the rest of your life really hard during those times. Uh, there's no way around it. Um, so when crunch time comes, solo life is it's great because you get all the upside, but you also have that all that work to do. And nobody to help support is one of the things I'm, I'm looking to have eventually, whether that's joining somebody else's firm or just adding people to my team. We'll see. So my practice, I think you did a pretty good job describing it. It's all appellate all the time, but it's everywhere. Do a lot of the work in the Supreme Court of the United States, both merits and an amicus work there. A lot of federal appeals, a lot of federal uh, amicus work. And I do a fair amount of state work too, both in Texas, which is probably the majority of my state practice. And then also in other states, I've got cases going on in Oregon and in, in Arkansas and in uh, Arizona, all over the country, doing all kinds of things, getting to meet all kinds of people. Yeah. And do you, how do you find your cases or how do your cases find you is the question might be better. Yeah. They have to find me these days because I don't, and this is on my list of to do's. I don't even have a website of my own right now. So 
it's all referrals and, and it's a wide ranging mix of people that I've worked with over time. I was really blessed to start my career at Aiken Gump and it was an awesome firm to work at, especially at the time I was there. It's still a great firm. But when I was there, I got to work with both Tom Goldstein and Patty Millette. So Patty is no longer a referral source because she is on the bench at DC. Yeah, but she's an awesome, amazing person and a mentor who's really guided me in the right direction and keep, kept me from hitting a lot of the pitfalls. But Tom, I work with a lot. I work with his firm a lot, do a lot, a lot of amicus work in their cases. And he's been a referral source to give me and introduce to other people. And Twitter has been a phenomenal resource for my practice because I, I went out and met all of the people in the Supreme Court bar who are on Twitter. They send a lot of work my way. And when you work Supreme Court cases from the ground up, when you're chasing petitions, you meet a lot of people. You, you meet all kinds of lawyers all over the place. And oftentimes this thing won't work out, but they'll have you in mind for some other problem that they're having another case. And so I get hooked into a lot of things that way. Yeah. When you say chasing petitions, can you tell me a little bit more about that or to someone who's unfamiliar with the term? Sure. Yeah. The glamour part of, of the Supreme Court is the 60 minutes that the case is up before the justices, but that is like the very least teeniest part of Supreme Court practice. And the bulk of the practice is in reading cases as they come out every week and trying to hunt down and shove your way through to meet the counsel for people in the lower courts to find the cases that are likely to go. So a lot of my time is spent reading the federal appellate opinions that come out on, you know, chasing issues that I'm interested in, and then going out and trying to get introduced to, to the parties in their counsel to tell them that they may have a case that might be serve-worthy. And oftentimes it won't be the only one doing that process. If it's, a, if it's likely to go, there will be three or four other people, oftentimes more senior and with more credentials than me, trying to do the same thing. So that's why it's a chasing process. It's, it's running around and really Really getting, it. and that's where the bulk of the work is done. Because once you've figured out what's cert worthy about the case, your petition's pretty much written. You just write it down, and you go find some amicus support. You're there, and then you're like 75% of the way writing your merits brief. That's it's like snowballs from that opening client introduction to a Supreme Court case pretty quick. It's funny, back ended that way. Yeah, it's funny because you think you don't think of sort of brief writing Supreme Court. Uh, litigators, the sort of bookish types that tend to do what you do as going out there and like identifying problems, but more importantly, like elbowing your way into, into cases. But it sounds like that's not an insignificant part of what it means to be a Supreme Court advocate today. I think that's fair. Although I would say the people in the Supreme Court bar are just uniformly amazing people. And they're very kind. So to call elbowing is really like a little bit rough. We're going to stand in, in front of each other and say, I think I should do it. And I don't think that Jeff Fisher shouldn't do it, which is a hard case to make, but it's a case that I will make if I have to. Yeah. That's not to take anything away from Jeff. And it's also not to say that he's not a great person like all of them, like Cannon, Neil, Tom, they're all phenomenal people and they're very kind. But yeah, we got to do it. We have to do a beauty contest to see who's going to get picked and involve saying why I'm going to be better for it than the other guy or gal. I hope we can come back to that. But I do want to, you, you mentioned your time at Aiken, and I want to talk a little bit about your path from getting a job doing big law appellate work, which is a challenge in and of itself. And then the decision to go out on your own and do it just in a very different way, especially coming from a more regional law school, which is not, I know, the most common path. So can you talk a little bit about how you got to Aiken and what you learned there and what the plan was once you got there? 
Uh, yeah, sure. And I, I wouldn't say that my path is the one to follow if your dream is to do appellate work. I wouldn't say I fell into appellate work, but it was not my plan initially. I came out of law school knowing I wanted to litigate, but not really knowing um, how or what I wanted to do. And in fact, knowing more about what I didn't particularly like about litigation than more knowing what I did. And so I, when I went to Aiken Gump, I was lucky enough to just be put on a pro bono appeal. And then a few months later, I uh, is when Tom Goldstein arrived at the firm and he was just super egalitarian. He said, if you want to work on Supreme Court cases, let me know. We'll get you on something. And so I did. And he said, OK, I got two things going on. One involves New York system for electing judges. And the other one involves it's a little case called District of Columbia versus Heller. So would you like to work on one of those two? And I was like, I think I know which one I want to do. <laughs> and once you work on a case like Heller, you uh, you don't ever let go of that bug. Like you, mm -hmm. your teeth are sunk in and you're going to be doing it. It was an amazing experience. Got to work with the folks at Amelby that actually argued the case. Walter Dellinger argued it really was the lead, the lead counsel in the case. But Tom was also advising the district on it. And so we got to do a lot of work on, on that all the way through and doing the strategizing and stuff like that. And I was hooked. And then Patty came and then I just bugged Patty and Tom Every week, if I have an opening my schedule, I would be like, ah, I, let's go see if they have anything to do. And they were really nice and they gave me some work to do. And those relationships continued as I went out on my own. There wasn't really a big appellate presence in Dallas when I was at Aiken Gump. So I didn't necessarily think that there was a part, path of partnership there. So I went to, uh, I went to a, a boutique that was run by a former Texas Supreme Court Justice, Deborah Hankinson and her partner. Jeff Levenger. And I was there for a long time through my first two kids being, but then I got brain, uh, I got a brain thing. I had uh, something that showed up on an MRI. They didn't know what it was. And I had a brain surgery and turned out not to be a big deal. I was glad that it came out. It was affecting my vision, but it was a bear to come back from brain surgery to a full-time sure. practice. So that's when I went on my own. I, it was really a means of stepping back and recovering and honestly to I was asking myself whether I wanted to continue in the law at all because I was still having really bad problems with my eyes and concentrating, mm -hmm. really bad headaches and the kind of post-brain surgery symptoms and also the symptoms of the thing that was in my head that were lingering. So it kind of led me to the question a lot, but I was really lucky again. Jeff Levenger, as I told you, mm -hmm. about, he, he'd since gone on, on his own and he had a, an extra appeal and he said, you can do this appeal. And it was like the kind of thing that, for I could do five hours a week on it and pay the same bills with get a bigger salary than I had when I was mm -hmm. working for somebody else. You do that a couple of times and you're like, well, maybe I should open my own shop and do this full time. And that's where that, that came from is I can do things on my own terms and I don't have to worry about answering to anybody and I'm not splitting the, the money with anybody else. So if I'm not working all the time, it's fine. And we also discovered as a family the, the flexibility that it gave us to do different things for me to be there for my kids in a way that I couldn't necessarily be mm -hmm. if I had uh, continued in a big time law practice. And then it's gotten steadily, steadily busier and busier. And again, I'm on that path where it's like reaching a decision point where can I continue doing this or do I need to need to do something else? But it's been a, a tremendous, amazing ride so far.
what's amazing about that, just to hear it from this side, is to hear you say this was your way of stepping back, but then seven years later, it's also your way of stepping up and getting and ramping back up into the profession and into potentially even wanting to expand your team or join a bigger team. I, I am curious. One of the biggest things, and I'm a dad of, I have two young kids also. One of the things that I try to ask people, particularly dads about on the podcast is about how they and I hate the word balance, but how they find balance between being a lawyer, especially one in a profession or in a part of the profession like yours, where the just because you stand up from your computer doesn't mean you stop thinking about the case, right? The case is in your head, especially if you're writing, just like writers always talk about. How do you remain present for your family when you're also working on these big appeals? I mean, that's a really huge challenge. And uh, boundaries are not my forte. It's, and and it, it's hard because... Um, there's a lot of time that I can take off there, but it's random time. My, my schedule is driven by other people for the most part. And if I've got a big appeal, that's nice because I can plug in the deadline and clear away the rest of the calendar and know pretty certainly what I'm going to be working on. But then you have a week like last week where there's an emergency mandamus that keeps me up all night, plus calls on four or five different additional matters that people want to do. And it's, there's not a lot of time. So in theory, this is a great job for a work-life balance because mm -hmm. it's about as predictable as it ever gets in law, but that's just not particularly predictable. So I think that the things that I really try and do are you know, one of the reasons that we go and do family trips to the mountains is to really spend time, unplug, get away from the computers and the screens and be out there in nature with our kids, really spending time just being around each other, being out the outdoors, camping and fishing and just being in each other's presence without any interruptions. Hmm. And then that's where I try and clear that zone, just any work at all. And then the rest of the time, I just try and do things like with my kids where I'll take them. My, my son started lacrosse, so I'm going to be the, the guy who takes them lacrosse and just clear right. that as my time. And I think that's part of it is just saying that these are times that are my family's time. And if the work's going to come, it's going to go around that. It's hard to do when you're a solo because you feel like every time a piece of work comes in the door, it's the last piece of work you'll ever get. And you've got to grab it and hold on to it. But it's not. And I think a little bit of perspective that I've gotten over seven years is that I can let this go. We can push that back. I don't have to get back to them today and get back to them first thing in the morning and mm -hmm. just seeing where I can stretch and, and create a little space for myself and my kiddos. It makes a ton of sense. So I guess I have one more question about the solo life, which is for someone thinking, maybe I want to do this. What's one thing you wish you knew before you started that you know now, and you wish you knew when you started? That's a good question. Cause I was so lucky in a lot of different ways. Um, that it was so serendipitous that I just fell into it. And I wouldn't say there was a lot of things I didn't know because I had mentors who were like, just feeding me the right information. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to twist your hypothetical a little bit and just say, what is it that somebody ought to know that they might not be thinking about when they're going out on their own? I would say you need your support structure. And that's kind of on, it stands on a three-legged stool. Like, how are you going to manage your family? What are you literally going to do? What are the expectations that your wife and kids are to have on you? And what are you prepared to force them to do mm -hmm. in order for you to do what you want to do? And you think about that and be conscious about that. And what's your support structure? For your body and your health because if you die of a heart attack there's no there's no firm to carry your name there's right. no income 
for you, your, for your family to live on, maybe life insurance or something like that. If you can't work, you're screwed. <laughs> right. And so right. what's that look like? What is, what is the plan that's put in place? And I do talk to a lot of uh, other small business owners, not necessarily law firm owners, mm-hmm. who have a terrible time because somebody dies and everything was in process in somebody's head and they were juggling from this account to pay this account. Right. It's like, it's a real nightmare. So you really, that's something you have to be conscious about. And the other thing is, what are you going to do if that work becomes too much? What is your support structure with mm-hmm. other lawyers? Who do you have in the wings that you can ask for a little bit of help if you really aren't there? And honestly, think about how does that grow into the bigger firm? If you're not going to be a solo, how are you going to audition the people you would like to try on and see if you're if you like to work with them? Because mm-hmm. you need to, the law firm mergers from 1,000 to 2,000 lawyers make a lot of noise and news, but those are no big deal compared to right. the law firm merger from one lawyer to two lawyers. That's right. the big deal. That's the hard The 50 50 merger where <laughs> you just went from being 100% of your boss to 50% of your boss. That's, That's a big exactly deal. right. Where everybody, every decision requires two people, where every dollar gets split in half. Those are really hard choices to make. A lot of the joy I've gotten has been in working with other people. Folks have been on Appellate Twitter and all kinds of places where I give them a little piece and you know, we try it out and see how mm-hmm. how we do. And I can go back to those people if I really need help. And I'm kind of like, was this a relationship that we could mature and formalize a little more and make something of? So that's something you really should be doing as a solo. So much of what you said, where we started, how you get business, uh, how you get referrals. I'm sure you now give have to give referrals out as well to others. It's all of these interpersonal connections in a way that you don't normally think of with a solo practice. It's, it's interesting that you say that because in, in a way, we're all little solos. Like every lawyer in private practice is a solo. They have a practice and their practice is theirs. And if they don't conceive of it as theirs, they're mis- making a mistake. So even if they're in a huge law firm with thousands of people, they're running a business of their own. And it's not under the O'Melveny, Aiken Gump name. It is their name and their connections and their network and their business. If their business is coming internally and they've got internal clients, it's still clients. It's still client relationships. And when when that partner asks you to do a memo, that's a client (laughs) as much as the client who it's ultimately for. And in a big firm, you're a solo. And when you're a solo, you're in a big firm because you (laughs) should have a network of people who help you and that you talk to and that you hash things out with because you got to replace that structure. Like lawyering can't be done. Like no one lawyers by themselves unless you're writing wills and that's lawyering by yourself. But the rest of this is with people. So it really is all about people. And when do you like when do you think that starts? Does that start from day one, from the second you start your first job as a lawyer, or maybe even day one from the second you start in law school? I think that can be intimidating. Any thoughts on how to both lower the stakes of that recommendation, but also emphasize how important it is? I think I think exactly what you said. Yes, it really is important. And I think that we don't emphasize enough to young lawyers that the need for them to go out and be doing things for their future. I feel as though there's such a well-trodden path through the development of the law that like everybody does the same thing to such a great degree. So many people are going to a big law firm, a medium-sized law firm. They start as a, a 1L with a certain set of expectations upon them and the certain expectations that they have. And all of that's a little bit of a lie. I just don't, I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe that a 1L is just a 1L or just, or a first year associate is a first year associate. 
everybody is a set of skills and things that they need to work on and people that they know and don't know. And yeah, I think that you should fairly early on be conscious at least about what you should be doing, but you got to be gentle with yourself at the same time. Because when I started Aching Up, I was very much chomping at the bit to get business. This was, I wanted, because that's, that is where your power mm -hmm. as a lawyer in a law firm is. And don't let anybody else tell you differently. If you don't have your own clients, forget about it. And um, that's true of appellate lawyers. And it's even harder for appellate lawyers because we don't get re repeat business. It comes in and out. But yeah, you gotta, you have to figure out where your clients are going to come from. That's something that you have to do. And in a very formal way, when you go up for partnership, you have to put that in a memo. You have to write down where your clients are going to come from. And so early on, you should have some answers that are percolating on those questions. You should really mm -hmm. have a business plan uh, a few years out of law school. That said, what should your business plan look like? It really shouldn't have big dollar signs in front of it or really huge expectations because I think a good lawyering network develops unpredictably. If you happen to go to school to the guy who just slots into the GC slot, AT&T, well, congratulations. That is great for you. And, and if you are so solid with that person that you are sure you're going to get AT&T's business on this particular thing, and then that's great for you. But that's not the way it works for most people. What it is, we grow this network of people that we know and they do things and hopefully we work together on things and that work that's an organic growth you can't control it completely but you can control the kinds of things you are doing to meet new people and so what i tell young people is you should be having lunch fairly regularly with people that you don't know it doesn't really matter who it can be your it can be your high law school classmates it can be you know lawyers within their firms it can be judges and people that you don't no, but talk to people that you don't know. Like you need to expand your network. It's got to involve people that, and you can serve on a board and get the same kind of experience. That was never my thing. I, mm -hmm. I'm not big on boards or bar positions or even your traditional networking event. My networking is always one-on-one -on -one and it's either coffee or a meal. But, but I do go out there and I meet people that I didn't know before. And that's really cool. It's actually really fun. But yeah, like a young lawyer should be doing a lot of that in addition to developing their skill base. And I, and I think that's the two basic things they should be focusing on. It's hard to, you can't put too much pressure on yourself. You can't say, oh God, if I'm not going to be a named partner at a law firm and I'm not doing X number of things and I'm not meeting five new people every week, or I don't know anybody in this industry that I'm sunk. I don't think that's a fair way to assess yourself. Mm -hmm. I think you should work on really focusing on your internal clients if you're at a firm, really delivering for them, making them feel like you're a trusted advisor, that you can help them with their mm -hmm. problems. And then you should be focused on getting out in the community and, uh, and getting to know people. Yeah. It really should be something you do in some way. And you can do it in ways that are non-threatening. Like, right. Yeah, I think that my method in particular is like the introvert's method to networking. <laughs> it does not involve a lot of walking up cold to people at cocktail parties. It doesn't right. require that. Right. It just requires that sending sending out an email. That's all it requires. And that's the scary part. And some of those emails never get returned, but you'd be surprised at the number that do. Mm -hmm. And like, I've met the coolest people that we have never other, otherwise met. But I just, I'll just say, hey, you seem like a cool person. I would love to work with you. And it'd be great. And I take with me a piece of advice that Vernon J Jordan gave our incoming associate class when I was at Aiken Go. We were like, the when we were first years, he just said, look, what I do is I try and find my friends 
and figure out ways that I can help them solve their problems. And that to me is the recipe for a happy, fulfilling, amazing career. And I feel like I've been blessed with the chance to do that. And I've been successful. Hmm. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I don't know if I can beat that. But like you can think of that in, in terms of the people you want to meet. You can go out and just meet who's cool, who's doing things that are really interesting in my space. And, and if I was to get to work with them, how cool would that be? And then if the answer to that is, oh, that'd be pretty cool. Then maybe I should go meet them and right. just give it a shot. And you, you don't drill that many dry holes. It really mm. works out. And you'll do 20 of those lunches and none of them will bring any business. And then you'll, you'll talk to someone from a friend of a friend who sends you like a ton of business. It's weird that way. But right. I always feel like those relationships, they build to an organic whole, mm -hmm. especially because at the very least people start to know who Carl Ciceri is. Because if Carl Ciceri sits in his office by himself all day long, literally no one will know who he is. That's, I think one of the biggest challenges is that word, getting over that word networking, because it has two as super negative connotations. One is that you have to have a network before you ever started. And that has to be because of where you grew up or who your family is. And that's certainly part of it that exists but it doesn't have to be that. And the other piece of it is that networking is a bunch of standing around in formal attire, drinking white, bad white wine and talking to the people around the room. But what you're saying is just be a person in your community and quantity in some ways over quality, not in a, I have to check off boxes sense, but in a go out and meet people sense. And that's, I, I think that's such good advice because Pretty much anybody can do that. I remember the partner I did the most work for when I was a big law associate. He was an incredible lawyer. He had incredible networks. He went to incredible schools. But his sort of bread and butter client was someone who was the head of a company for a, one of his kids' soccer teams, like their best friend on the soccer team. And that became his almost his whole business for a while was that. And I think people forget that. The other piece of it is, you know, I love that Vernon Jordan story. I'm going to tell that story. I love it. Yeah, use it. <laughs> yeah, right, for sure. Is Vernon J Jordan didn't live in the age of Twitter, right? You have decided, if I said to you, hey, Carl, you need to build a business plan, the first thing would be start a website, which you admit you don't even have right now. Instead, you've built this network of people through whatever it is, 280 character social media. That's how I found you. That's how I find a lot of my guests for the podcast. So using social media as a means for business and good sounds like another way to do this. And it's pretty good for introverts. I think you're totally right. And I think you're totally right about the pejorative word networking it, it, we need a new word because it's so soiled that like nobody who's anybody i would want to have lunch with really wants to do it and that, that's funny because when we do the lunch that's what we're doing and i also feel like it, it implies a certain kind of box that a certain set of expectations that is really discouraging to people and also isn't that great of networking because i kind of tend to think that if you follow the traditional path to getting clients, you're gonna get the traditional kinds of clients. And a lot of those people are not that fun to work with. When you put a lot of lines in the water, you get to be choosy about who you associate with. And you get to say, it's great that you are a person who has a lot of potential business, but I don't have to latch on to you. I don't have to do everything you say. And I don't have to take your abusive sat Sunday evening phone calls when I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be with my, I can choose the people that I like working with and I can have more of them maybe and not have that anchor piece of business. That's a great thing you can do. And yeah, I think that it's just a matter of finding the kinds of things that, that work for you. And, and I think you're right too. The world of social media is one of those amazing tools. And I hate saying that in a certain way because yeah. 
a lot of people, that has its own kind of pejorative context that I should go on there and burn. I feel like a lot of young lawyers now think that the way they should become famous is to go out there and burn more famous people than they are. To go out there and write these really angry comments on their tweets and say, oh, you're so stupid. And I'm just to show you how smart I am. And as I've gotten older, I'm realizing that being smart isn't all that important. Even at the Supreme Court, the, the cases aren't like rocket science. It's reading a statute. Being kind is way more important. Building relationships is not about asserting dominance over other people. It's not about beating people up or beating up the wrong, beating up the bad guys and, mm -hmm. and embracing the good guys. And we good guys are going to take care of each other. It's like a lot of the good guys aren't going to be good guys. And they're not going to be good guys to you, especially because that kind of burn and rise mentality in, in Twitter, it's like they don't carry people with them. Those angry mm -hmm. people, they don't care. They're worried about themselves. Yeah, They're selfish, trollish people and becoming their friend is not going to get you anywhere. Whereas if you find people who you're aligned with on a more personal level and that, that are just nice people you like because they, they like baseball or whatever. Right. And you focus on your commonalities. The world is incredibly flat that way. Like mm -hmm. I can get to know the chairman of the FCC really fast. I do. That's pretty random. I wouldn't, they, we don't run in the same social circles. In fact, we don't even live in the same town. I've gotten to know the, the, the absolute apex of the Supreme Court bar, the, the absolute top people solely because I didn't have any, I don't have any con contact with them otherwise, except for my work through the court. And only that is more reinforcing than anything else. Because if my name shows up on a brief and they knew my name from Twitter, then they know me. Mm -hmm. And so some of them have reached out to me and been like, hey, we want to work on a case. It's, yeah, I wanted my list to meet. But yeah, it's amazing. The world of social media is so flat. It's a totally different way of getting out there and doing things. But I think there are ways of doing it that are good. And that are, there are ways of doing it that are bad. And a lot of people get stuck into the bad ways of doing things. And that really hinders their development. And also, by the way, if you flame somebody on Twitter and you get them really mad at you and then you submit your job application to them. Not great. It doesn't work that great. Yeah. It doesn't go so well for you. Just and I can tell you, there are some people who've tried the workaround where it's like, Carl, can you reintroduce me to this person? Because we had this banner interaction on Twitter and it's kind of, I don't know, man, you... You made your own bet on that one. But I don't know <laughs> if you're going to get me to rescue you for that. Yeah. Raising people up, I think, is a much more effective approach than putting people down on social media. And, you know, I totally agree. I learned about the job that I now have because I followed a bunch of people on Twitter who already had the job. And I said, huh, I like what they're talking about. I like the way they talk to each other. I thought I was interested in before, but now I'm really excited about it. So I, I totally agree. But I do want to switch gears and talk a little bit about writing if we can. Let me do one more thing. Sure, go ahead. Because yeah. we, we absolutely have to do a plug. I think there's going to be a lot of overlap. Yep. If you're interested in law and appellate law, you should get on Twitter and you should yeah. get a handle and you should follow appellate Twitter because in a world of people that are terrible, like appellate Twitter is a, is a community of some amazing people. And I'm so blessed that I found it because those people are yes. my friends and they're mm -hmm. amazing. And they kind of to a person, they're just really phenomenal people. And it's also that it also connects you to the very bottom strata of the appellate world to the very, very tip top like mm -hmm. that. So that's my one thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just add on top of that, you don't have to be 
a Supreme Court justice to be on appellate Twitter. That's the other cool part about social media and the world that we live in. You can be a 1L who just thinks you might be interested in it, and you're allowed to participate as an equal participant. And you can do what I did, which for years was be just a voyeur, but you can also make yourself known and ask questions and add add your perspective. You might not always agree with everything, and that's okay, but absolutely start participating. And the other thing I'll say that I was going to say when you were talking about building a business is we live in a world where everyone's name is out in the world, right? Like you can find anybody anywhere and learn a lot about them. And so building an audience and being your own best advocate on the internet is a huge part of being a 21st century American, but also be definitely being a 21st century lawyer, 100%. Yeah, totally. Justice Willett, when he was, when he was on the Texas Supreme mm-hmm. Court, said, it was judicial malpractice to not be hmm. as an, an elected official. But I think he would say for any judge, it was judicial malpractice to not be on Twitter because hmm. it's your job to communicate what you do to the community that you serve. It's part of what you do. And I, I think it's true of the, the modern law practice is about, we don't stand so much behind brands anymore. Paul Weiss is less what Paul Weiss used to be. Now it's more Ken Jam again. Mm-hmm. And his name's not on that, but like the, he's the one who puts a stamp on what it does. And we know him because he's amazing. And he's on Twitter. It shows you like those are the kinds of things that really matter in the modern world of law practice. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to my next question, which is perfect, which is Canon on Twitter said that you are one of the best amicus writers of today. That's pretty darn high praise. I'm really curious, first of all, about how you think about amicus practice specifically and how you think about writing amicus briefs, remembering that some people who are listening may not even know what an amicus brief is. First of all, Canon's incredibly, I'm not sure I'm the very best at this out there. There's some really fantastic writers out there and a lot of them are done because sometimes it's not even the person who appears at the top of the brief that actually did the work getting it done. But yeah, I've had the really the blessing of being given a lot of opportunities to do amicus works. And it was a something that helped me really develop because I think I started my law firm as a solo a little bit prematurely. prematurely. I didn't feel like a full-fledged appellate lawyer. I didn't feel like I was that master of procedure. And I was like a good writer, but I was not great. I was, I had things I needed to work on. So Amicus work really gave me the opportunity to really work on it. And when you're Firm rises or falls by your ability to get the next piece of business. And the piece of business you have in front of you is an amicus brief. You're going to just give it the best you can and really think about it. And so I think that I really started unpacking what what com- goes into a good amicus brief in a way that a lot of people don't, because I think a lot of people just say, well, I'm writing an amicus brief and I'm going to try and find some other amicus briefs that do what I want to do. But I'll, my, my approach is differently. Mine is I want to find the magic words that are going to move a yes to a no or a no to a yes on somebody's mind on that court. And what does that mean? And why is that a different approach than other people take? For one thing, it's not going to be trying to reiterate the ground that the other people have have done. I think that it's a crutch that we lean on as lawyers, that we argue the merits of cases. That's that's what an appellate lawyer or a lawyer tends to think of. They tend to Mm -hmm. think about representing the client. But that comes with all this procedural baggage and stuff that an amicus brief doesn't really have to even worry about. So it's very freeing. And it's unfortunate that so many of the briefs that you see are just retread that same ground. Because it's like, they wrote chapter one. You can write chapter two. You you can do Mm. something completely different. You can take one sentence out of one opinion 
in a previous case and build a theme on that. You can delve into the history. You can do anything you want. And the question is, you can think of it from the justices' perspective as they approach the bench for oral argument. The parties laid a lot, they're forced to lay a lot of groundwork and it's kind of this uniform surface of 14,000 words. What are the points that stick out from that? And why does it matter? And then another thing that's really nice is to think about it from your client's perspective. And that is, you know, if you represent an interest group of certain people, that retreading is particularly bad because it's like, if I represent a minority interest group, I can tell you the way this case is going to affect minorities and it's going to affect minorities. You can think of a way that anything that you do is gonna disproportionately impact somebody. It's just it's the way it is. And you can, this is a really unique way of looking at it and it really is very valuable to the court. Really can move, especially in that question. And I think if you think about it from the, the justice's mind where he's like, I know I'm gonna come out this way, like, how am I going to write this opinion? Am I going to write this opinion big or small? Those things really will influence them. It's to say, am I going to disrupt all these people's lives? Mm -hmm. If so, I need to have a really good reason to do that. And so telling them that you're going to disrupt their lives with this and doing that, making a convincing case of that, you're going to move that justice's mind. You can't make, you can't make really conservative justice all of a sudden believe a very liberal view of the law. But you can make him decide whether or not to overrule his precedent. You can make him decide whether or not to write to create a brand new test that's going to be really confusing for a bunch of judges and lawyers to try and apply, or to, to stick with something more simple. Like you, you're going to be able to move. Hmm. It's not too much to ask. Those are the kinds of things that I think about when I'm writing, and, and also to just make it memorable and easy to read. Just they're reading this stuff at four o'clock in the morning, the day mm -hmm. of argument. It's like. Don't be brutal. <laughs> Don't right. be evil, right? Exactly. And I think there's I think there's some pushback in the world on amicus brief writing generally. It's obviously a much larger part of the practice than it was 50 or 100 years ago. There are many more amicus briefs, particularly on big issue cases. But how do you think about that? As somebody who teaches legal writing, right, part of my job is to teach students kind of the basic rules, what the judges expect, what legal audiences expect. And what you just described is, is someone who has to use those rules, but also strategically break them. How do you think about finding your hook or what are you doing when you're reading, reading a file and saying, how can I help my client? I think whether or not I'm representing a party or writing an amicus brief, I think a lot about the first line of my brief. I think a lot about where that, what, what's it, what does it do and why does it need to do it? And most importantly, like why is going to make the reader read the second line of my brief and not throw it in a pile? Because it's so tedious. It's so like you, you read these cases, like you go into these cases where they have 80 amicus briefs and you're like, mm -hmm. you know that most of them don't even get written, don't even get read. But that like some clerk again, at three o'clock in the morning, who has a family and children is looking at this thing and being like, why am I reading this? What is the point? And I try and answer that question for them. I try and give them a reason to keep reading my brief by keeping it interesting, by keeping it light and very readable. So they never have to read it twice. So they pick up the point right away and everything comes from there. So yeah, I spend a lot of time on the first line and I'll write it and I'll rewrite it. And oftentimes I have to, and then I kind of discover what the case is about and rewrite the introduction and totally reverse the order of my arguments based on it. But if I feel if I get that, that first line and I forget that first, first paragraph, the brief writes itself hmm. and, and it goes relatively because it's usually about what this case is about and why it impacts the world and my clients. That's what the first line is about. What's the nub of the case? 
about. And I, I think it's especially challenging in cases where if you're doing a full appeal from a trial, you're going to be raising five different issues. Mm-hmm. It's a really huge case. And, and I know that may be breaking the rule that we should only raise three issues. But in the real world, we don't raise just three issues because <laughs> I'm sorry, when it's $20 million in column A and you $20 million in column B, I'm going to challenge something in both columns. I'm going to do my, yeah, I, you have to think about what the nub of the case is about. What's the, again, what's the nudge that's going to get the court on your side? And that's what your introduction looks like, is trying to get, getting them the theme of being like, why is what the court did below wrong or right? And, and why is that important? So they want to continue and that then they have the equipment that they need to get through your brief. Yeah, it's one of the most challenging things, candidly, to teach. And I will concede that I don't feel like I've really learned how to teach it yet, is how to teach the introduction. But I think some of the things that you said make a lot of sense. Write it first, because it helps guide your thinking, but then also write it last, because the introduction you wrote for you may not be the introduction that you want to write for the audience, which is the judges. And that alone, that one point takeaway point is one that I'll take away from this conversation. I think it's really important. And also plug, you had a thread on Twitter all about introductions that I thought was fantastic and really helpful. Yeah. Look, I I try to end these uh, discussions by asking if there's sort of one piece of advice that either you received that you thought was really powerful or that you give to new law students or new lawyers. I'm going to ask the question a little bit differently for you, which is, What's your piece of advice on how to become a better writer? Because that strikes me as something that you are uh, particularly qualified to answer and something that I consistently struggle with myself and for my students is good writers, as I think you've said, don't just come down from on high. Some of them do, but for us mere mortals, you can become a better writer. So what's your advice to become a better writer? That's a good question. And I think the my, my one line answer about it is you are what you read at the end of the day. And that means not only you know, reading a lot of the kind of briefs you like to like that you'd like to uh, produce, but unpacking them and, and thinking about why they work. And I think also one of the things that I think really meant a lot to me was the more I read briefs from really great Supreme Court practitioners, Cannon and Neil, and Tom, I realized that they were doing a lot more than just giving me a rote version of the law or even in the merits brief. It's just, there's just so much more going on in those briefs than just oh, this test has three elements and I'm going to recite these three elements. You're going to find that they're going to start with element three. And why did they start with element three? If you unpack, if you spend some time unpacking the whys in what they do, first of all, you're not going to understand a lot of it at first, but gradually over time, it's going to unfold to you. What's the strategy going on here? You're going to see some really brilliant thinking. And, and it's really subtle because the whole idea is to make it look like this is no big deal. The whole idea is to make this look really easy and really simple, really surficial, and you can skate on right past it. But there's like sometimes some really tricky stuff going on. And learning what that's all about is going to make you much stronger. It's going to make you a much more effective advocate. Mm-hmm. Good, good lawyers are good legal readers. And... It, it can be hard to find that, but again, not to push your pellet Twitter again, but if you want to find some good writers to start reading and start following, that's a, if you want to do this kind of work, it's a good place to start. Thank you, Carl. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've learned a ton and I look forward to our continued conversations. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.